The reign of God is within you. You know, we've been preaching all summer about the realm of God, the reign of heaven, and I don't think I've ever really defined what it is I mean by that term. What is it? Where is it? When is it? And how would we even know it if we saw it? It's not really an accident that I haven't defined the term, because it's something that Christians have never really been in agreement about, all the way back to the first followers of Jesus. For some, the reign of God was a literal kingdom with lands and laws and institutions built on the foundations of the ancient kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Perhaps a future political kingdom that followers of Jesus were meant to build, to establish and participate in here on earth. For some, the reign of God was about a religion, a set of beliefs and practices, a community that existed within or perhaps separate from political kingdoms. For some, the realm of God was a heavenly kingdom, a reality above and beyond the kingdoms of the earth, where God reigned directly, a reality that sometime in the future would be united with the earth. For some, the reign of God was a spiritual reality, a powerful but intangible dimension that surrounds us and influences us without being observable most of the time. For some, the reign of God was a symbol, a metaphor for faith, an individual and collective way of being, a shorthand way to talk about the core of Jesus' teachings. And for some, the reign of God was a mixture of all of those things. Little column A, little column B, maybe just check off that all of the above tab just to be on the safe side. And that's all fine and good. I find that Jesus used the, the idea of the reign of God quite flexibly in his teachings. There's merit in all of the perspectives that I've listed. But even with the abundance of options for understanding, or perhaps because of the abundance of options, the reign of God ends up being a vague, abstract concept. Even with all the earthy and folksy wisdom of the parables that we've been reading together, it's hard to nail down exactly what the reign of God means for our daily existence in 2020 especially when we read that what Jesus said in today's scripture reading, that the reign of God doesn't come in a visible way. You can't say, see, there, here it is, or there it is. No, look, the reign of God is already in your midst. Entos himon estin. The reign of God in you is. You can't see it. You can't point to it but in you it is. Here again, there are multiple ways of understanding. Some translations say within you, the singular you, the reign of God is somehow inside me as an individual and you as individuals. Others translate it as among you, the collective sense, kind of like the way we talk about the church collectively as the body of Christ. The reign of God somehow exists in the relationship between me and you. It's in our community. Others go with something like the inclusive translation that we read. The reign of God is in your midst. It's transcendent but intimate. It's not just in one of us or all of us. It's around us. It's close. It's 
everywhere, all around us, in our midst. Again, I think those are legitimate understandings. But vague, what does that actually mean for me? Especially in 2020, when a lot of the time it doesn't feel like the realm of God is within me or among us or already in our midst. As I've been wrestling with this this summer, I keep coming back to one of the best sermons I've ever heard, preached by a writer named David Foster Wallace. Actually, it isn't a sermon, but a commencement speech that Wallace gave at a notoriously secular liberal arts college in the States in 2005. And David Foster Wallace was not a Christian, to my knowledge. And as you'll hear in his speech, he says explicitly that he's not talking about religion or spirituality. And yet he gives one of the most clear, practical explanations of the realm of God that I've ever heard. So I'm going to play a shortened version of This is Water by David Foster Wallace. Keep in mind he's giving a commencement speech, talking to a bunch of brand new university graduates, trying to give them a sense of what it is to, make, to live a meaningful life. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is that in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life-or-death importance. The plain fact is that you graduating seniors do not yet have any clue what day in, day out really means. There happen to be whole, large parts of adult American life that nobody talks about in commencement speeches. One such part involves boredom, routine, and petty frustration. The parents and older folks here will know all too well what I'm talking about. By way of example, let's say it's an average adult day, and you get up in the morning, go to your challenging white-collar college graduate job, and you work hard for eight or ten hours, and at the end of the day you're tired and somewhat stressed, and all you want is to go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for an hour and then hit the sack early, because of course you have to get up the next day and do it all again. Then you remember there's no food at home. You haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job. And so now, after work, you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. It's the end of a work day, and the traffic is apt to be very bad. So getting to the store takes way longer than it should. And when you finally get there, the supermarket is very crowded. Because, of course, it's the time of day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. But you can't just get in and quickly out. You have to wander all over the huge, overlit store's confusing aisles to find the stuff you want. And you have to maneuver your junkie cart through all these other tired, hurried people with carts, etc., etc., cutting stuff out because it's a long ceremony. And eventually, you get all your supper supplies, except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lanes open, even though it's the end of the day rush. So the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating. But you can't take your frustration out on the frantic lady working the register who is overworked at a job whose daily tedium and meaninglessness surpasses the imagination of any of us here at a prestigious college. But anyway, you finally get to the checkout line's front and you pay for your food 
and get told to have a nice day in a voice that is the absolute voice of death. And then you have to take your creepy, flimsy plastic bags of groceries in your cart with the one crazy wheel that pulls maddeningly to the left all the way out through the crowded, bumpy, littery parking lot. And then you have to drive all the way home through slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush hour traffic, etc., etc. Everyone here has done this, of course, but it hasn't yet been part of you graduates' actual life routine, day after week, after month, after year. But it will be. And many more dreary, annoying, seemingly meaningless routines besides. But that is not the point. The point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly where the work of choosing is going to come in. Because the traffic jams and crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm going to be pissed and miserable every time I have to shop. Because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire to just get home. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look at how repulsive most of them are and how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line. Or at how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of the line. And look at how deeply, personally unfair this is. If I choose to think this way in the store and on the freeway, fine, lots of us do. Except thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic that it doesn't have to be a choice. It is my natural default setting. It's the automatic way that I experience the boring, frustrating, crowded parts of adult life when I'm operating on the automatic, unconscious belief that I am the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. The thing is that, of course, there are totally different ways to think about these kinds of situations. In this traffic, all these vehicles stuck and idling in my way, it's not impossible that some of these people in SUVs have been in horrible auto accidents in the past and now find driving so terrifying that their therapist has all but ordered them to get a huge, heavy SUV so they can feel safe enough to drive. Or I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket's checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am, and that some of these people probably have much harder, more tedious or painful lives than I do. Again, please don't think I'm giving you moral advice, or that I'm saying you're supposed to think this way, or that anyone expects you to just automatically do it, because it's hard. It takes will and effort, and if you are like me, some days you won't be able to do it, or you just flat out won't want to. But most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose to look differently at this fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of her husband who's dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicles department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a horrific, infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Of course, none of this is likely, but it's also not impossible. It just depends what you want to consider. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and who and what is really important, if you want to operate on your default setting, then you, like me, probably won't consider possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. 
But if you really learn how to think, how to pay attention, then you will know you have other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred. On fire with the same force that lit the stars. Love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. Not that that mystical stuff's necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. This, I submit, is the freedom of real education, of learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. I know that this stuff probably doesn't sound fun and breezy or grandly inspirational the way a commencement speech is supposed to sound. What it is, as far as I can see, is the capital T truth with a whole lot of rhetorical niceties stripped away. You are, of course, free to think of it whatever you wish. But please don't just dismiss it as some finger-wagging Dr. Laura sermon. None of this stuff is really about morality or religion or dogma or big fancy questions of life after death. The capital T truth is about life before death. It is about the real value of a real education, which has almost nothing to do with knowledge and everything to do with simple awareness. Awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us all the time, that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over, this is water, this is water. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 14 about a great banquet feast. The host sent out invitations to all the important people. Please come. Everything is ready and it's going to be amazing. But the invited guests began to make excuses. The first said, well, I've just bought a new piece of property and I simply must go and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I just purchased five new teams of oxen. I can't come because I have to break them in right away. And another said, please excuse me. It sounds lovely, but I just got married and you know how that is. Having been rejected by his friends of polite society, the host instead threw open their doors. Go out into the streets and invite anyone who will come. Bring the outcasts, the poor, the disabled, the strangers, anyone who is passing by. This will be a great party, and those who refused to come will miss out on the whole thing. If the realm of God is that kind of party, how do we miss it? 
How is it possible to miss the great feast in our lives? What could be so important, so urgent, so diverting that we would fail to see the realm of God, the beauty and wonder and amazement of a world on fire with the same force that lit the stars all around us? And yet, we do. I do. We get overwhelmed by our fears of illness and loss and death. We get distracted by the stress of earning a living, the daily struggle for meaning and purpose. We get outraged by the injustice of the world, beaten down by our inability to do anything about it. We grow numb because of the constant stream of bad news, of entertainment, of so much data that we hear numbers like 870,000 people dying around the world from COVID-19. And we shrug, well, at least it's not that bad here. And yet, even when we're too busy and numb and overwhelmed to see it, there it is, the reign of God is in our midst. How can we possibly believe that with all that's going on in the world? For me, it comes down to what David Foster Wallace describes as the work of choosing, of awareness that I am not the center of the world, that my perspective is so very limited. I can only see the realm of God when I get outside of myself to see God in everything, in the whole of creation, and in the pieces that are right in front of me. The world is meaningful and sacred, sacred, all of it, even in 2020. The sacred is undeniable. The beauty and wonder of the universe are self-evident. But like anything that is self-evident, it is only evident if you choose to look at it and to see it on those terms. This is not an easy choice to make much of the time. Freedom isn't quite the right word to describe the struggle that it takes sometimes to make that choice. Even that grounded, hopeful voice in the video was silenced several years later when David Foster Wallace lost his life to suicide. As Wallace said elsewhere in his speech, the whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. I find that tough to do as an individual. That's why I think Jesus keeps holding up the reign of God in balance between this individual and collective effort, a community that together holds on to that perspective, that reality. So even as we enter another season of less than ideal circumstances for sharing life together as a church community, even as we're bored and frustrated with Zoom church and music videos and social distance guidelines and COVID bubbles and cohorts, I hope you'll keep finding ways to come back to this place where we earnestly and graciously and stubbornly keep on naming the sacred fire of the universe, where we insist on infusing the mundane with meaning, where we celebrate the mystical oneness and goodness of all things in faith, hope, and love. The realm of God is within you, among us, already in our midst.
This is water. Amen.